This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... RPG tournaments. Project Coast. Our beef with Joseph Campbell. And Jeremy Bentham's head. Remember that Dinosaur 5e game we were talking about? Hmm, you mean the one from Atlas Games, uh, Plane something? It's Plane Gia, Robin. The Star Shaman Song of Plane Gia, to be exact. Oh yes, the prehistoric setting for 5e. Well, you can dive into Stone Age fantasy role-playing right now! Tell me more! The digital version of the core book has dropped, so you can order it now for immediate download from Atlas Games. That's awesome! Dare you say Dinorific? I do dare say dinorific. There's the plain Gia core book PDF, plus the heart-pounding adventure Lair of the Night Thing in PDF, and the custom-created soundtrack featuring 54 separate tracks called the Songs of the Stone Age. The Rattle of Dice, the Thump of Miniatures, the Crunch of Doritos, and the Benevolent Gaze of Peter Frampton checking the standings Welcome us once more into the Gaming Hut, where we're going to, I think, look a little bit into the past, or at least it's brighter in the past when we look, because we're going to talk about RPG tournaments, which you used to hear a, a bit about, and now maybe a little bit less. Robin, is it just that you and I have, you know, moved closer ever to the Grey Havens and that the Happy Hobbits are still... <laughs> getting their Pathfinder tourneys on and just not telling us? Or is it that a historical and cultural moment has indeed passed and we are wisely stroking our beards uh, in the, I don't know, in wherever people stroke their beards? Yeah. So so I'm, I'm sure somewhere there are uh, deep grognards and perhaps even somewhere an OSR contingent following in their path who are still playing RPG tournaments. But that used to be a really big deal. And it was sort of beginning to taper off when we entered the hobby, but you would still hear about particular tournaments and it was a, it was a thing. And now I can't remember the last time I actually heard of such a thing. And even like in the nineties, there's a local con where it was sort of, well, this, this very old school, their D and D is all tournaments. And so I think that if certain listeners are the kids today, yeah. that we even have to explain what an RPG tournament is. And that is, it was a competitive run of D&D or sometimes even champions that a bunch of people would play in parallel. So it'd be the same scenario run by different GMs. That's not dead. That's something that, you know, yep. if you play a Pelgrane game, there are a bunch of scenarios that we supply to GMs. But what you don't do anymore is not just have people compare notes, but compare scores and have a winner and have a series of elimination rounds until it's not always an elimination round. Sometimes you would just get a score for whatever, and then you, you would be the, the table that won, or you might be the player that won. And in the more elaborate versions, a player from each table would get to go on and move on to play in the final version. So that suddenly the last round, sometimes there are even like three rounds when, and so that you'd be, you'd be playing the same character, but other people would be jumping in, as far as you're concerned, from your point of view, suddenly playing the same character that somebody else was playing along the way. And so you were not only, sometimes you'd be competing as an entire table to beat all of the other tables to get a score. Sometimes you were competing with all of the other players in your game in order to defeat them and move on and get through the uh, elimination phase to the final thing. And at some conventions, it was a big deal. Other people who weren't even playing paid attention to, and sometimes there would even be a ongoing continuity from year to year uh, where the same characters would have different adventures and you would find out you know what happened to black raven or whatever it was and it would become a spectator sport in some instances where people would gather around sometimes the people who had played in previous rounds and been eliminated wanted to see how the story ended yeah and other times you know people who knew that this was a big exciting thing and it's been a long time since that's had much of a footprint at any convention that I've gone to, certainly. Yeah, Dundercon used to have a dedicated room for what they called, I think it was called supported play. It's the thing where 
Pathfinder and I guess Wizards used to have, um, Pathfinder definitely had a number of modules that would come out and you would all get them at the same time and you would play them again. Like you say, everyone would be playing the same module and you would definitely be, you know, given some sort of advancement for your character that you use in this kind of play based on how you did in the module in the same way that you get advancement based on how you did in regular Pathfinder, but you would keep track of it. And, you know, it, there would have continuity from convention to convention. And I knew friends of mine would come to Dundrakon because that's where they could play in this supported play gaming and, and get the official, you know, sort of house scenario from the company. And that was uh, kind of a big deal. So this is sort of the echo or the halfway house from, as you say, you know, point scoring during game and elimination tournaments. And of course I ran and by I, I mean, good uh, friend, John Adamus ran because I made him do it. The uh, Knights black agents tournament at uh, Dexcon, I believe it was when we built a series of elimination scenarios that fed you into a final scenario where characters from all those elimination scenarios met and we, you know, awarded points for survival and for figuring out what the vampire's plan was. And I believe our own Lisa Padel won uh, that tournament, if I remember correctly. She she either won or she came in like second. She did very, very well. But that was like a one-off sort of a heightened experience thing. And it certainly was not a thing that, you know, Belgrain is supporting in conventions forever. It was just a thing that Vinny wanted something special and never repeatable for Dexcon. And he wanted me to do it. And so that's what I did. Right. So you reached back into the annals. Exactly. The revival. Yeah. And I'm sure other people will tell us of tournaments they played in uh, last year and mm-hmm. so forth. But during early Gen Cons, that was a really big deal. That was like the centerpiece of D&D play. Mm-hmm. And so I guess this is where we begin to discuss how it went from being an extremely central part of getting together for a role-playing convention to something that is now, when you do it, it's a, a throwback, that it's a, a nostalgia exercise. And I think the main answer is just that tabletop role-playing moved away from its wargaming roots to more people perceiving it as not just a a cooperative venture, but also sort of an art form. And it became stranger and stranger to people that it's something that you would compete as. So that once you moved away from, and it kind of obviously, once you have point scoring, you create an adversarial dynamic between the GM and the players, which is something that the vast corpus of GM advice has been trying to extirpate for mm-hmm. about three decades now. Yeah. And also I think that part of it is that that was intended as, you know, as indeed the Pathfinder thing was as a means of support and encouraging people to keep playing the game. And at some point dungeons and dragons became so enormous that just the sheer weight of people doing it outweighed the number of people doing tournaments. And so therefore it became less important to any given sort of part of the hobby you know, I assume that Dragon Magazine still mentioned who won the big tournament at Gen Con, but, you know, the the hobby got bigger than Dragon subscribers. It got bigger than anyone could manage. And unlike, say, track and field, where there is both a paid infrastructure to remind you who the best track and field people are and a genuine objective skill in doing it, and so therefore... I assume if you're in high school track, you keep track of Olympic track because that's all part of a great continuity for you. No one playing a role-playing game, by and large, is that invested, uh, except for the occasional weirdo on the internet, in what the company is doing. That That's, you know, it's like, I'm glad that Matt Mercer is having fun. I'm glad that, you know, whoever is still playing organized play is having fun, but we're doing our own thing because we're in a a game of our own devising. And the whole point of this is to create individualized entertainment just for you and your table, not to be constrained by what's going on in, you know, some organized play tournament, you know, half a continent away by people you don't know and would not actually be any better at role-playing than you if it came down to it. Right. And the the question of what is better at role-playing, the tournaments were uh, in an era where it was more about problem solving, mm-hmm. and, you know, also lucky rolling and, yep. you know, how fast you got through the scenario, whether you succeeded all, all the encounters, whether your character got killed off. But overall, in the tabletop format, it is extremely difficult to create an objective framework 
uh, unlike, you know, track and field to determine who won. Mm -hmm. And I think that also now certainly there are sports, you know, figure skating and so forth, where there's uh, very plainly mm -hmm. a lot of subjectivity to uh, who is chosen to, to win. But I think ultimately the strain between the hobby becoming more cooperative and less uh, competitive and the difficulty of even people who wanted to compete feeling that they had genuinely lost uh, when they were eliminated, I think sort of caused a problem. And of course, there is something that has replaced that that's a much closer analogy than track and field, and that's esports, right? So right, that yeah. There are superstars of video games because those are much more contained in their uh, play and therefore something that you can readily score. And certainly... The fact that a thing is boring does not prevent people from turning it into a competition because no. <laughs> on one of the many ESPNs, I don't know if it's happened already or if it's scheduled for next year, there's going to be competitive Excel spreadsheets <laughs> televised. <laughs> I thought you were going to make a cricket joke, but actually you may have found something <laughs> even worse. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, but, but it doesn't go on for six days. Right. The, well, I mean, one thing yet. cricket still has. Yeah. Once the Excel people get a hear of it, all manner of things are going to happen. Yeah, I mean, people will compete over anything. That's people. And to some extent, maybe that is a, a little bit of an, it's another unsung triumph of our little art form is that we have managed to, I don't want to say move away because I'm not teleological, but we've managed to inculcate a opposite spirit in a game that really is at its basis about problem solving and rolling dice. And the fact that we've figured out how to nurture and grow the cooperative lobe of that hobby to the point that in many, you know, for many people, it completely obscures the competitive part of the hobby is actually, you know, it, it's very interesting. I would say uh, most things do turn into competitions. Even if you're, you know, your, your thing is that you collect a classic car, you still take it to the parade and you want to have a better classicer car than the other guys in the classic car parade. And even though that's the ultimate solitary activity, competition will always work its way in. And I suppose to some extent, the notion of competition at the table works against lots of other things that the table wants to accomplish. And that's why cooperation was able to blossom. And maybe games like Call of Cthulhu played their part because once the universe is so fatal to you, once your characters only have 18 hit points ever, competition becomes a, a very clearly a zero-sum game. I mean... <laughs> yeah, so the team that successfully uh, pushes Cthulhu back behind the waves instead of all being destroyed, they're the losers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they didn't follow the spirit of it at all. And I suppose what we will eventually come to as streamed role-playing becomes even more of a thing is uh, there's already, you know, people have won podcast awards for actual play podcasts, but how far are we away from you know, and, and Oscars or Emmys for streaming role-playing. Right. That may bring competition back into it in a whole other way where other people, critics and audiences, are judging the aesthetic presentation and excitement and fun of a streamed role-playing session as Oscar voters would judge different films up against each other. So And, and become invested even in the way that a, a film fan might be you know, oh, Anne Hathaway was robbed that year or whatever right. it is. And, you know, people, you know, the streamies coming to angry forum debates <laughs> in the next decade, surely. Right. I, I guess someone hearing this uh, in the streaming space is going, hey, we should organize, you know, a streaming competition and, uh, you know, create publicity for all of our different uh, streams and uh, uh, have guest spots. I think uh, that would be a, a fun new twist, mm -hmm. you newfangled folks, to take this old-fangled thing and uh, put it into streaming. So, uh, well, now that we're giving out homework, Ken, yep. I think it's time for us to, to flee this hut and see what other huts await us in the remainder of this podcast. Track down foul sorcerers in a corrupt city. 
clamber through underground ruins, infiltrate the treasure vault of your decadent rival, backstab your way to power and influence, in Swords of the Serpentine, the gumshoe game of swords and sorcery, investigation and intrigue, by Kevin Culp and Emily Dresner, and your mighty feud pals at Pelgrane Press. Strap on your blades for danger and forbidden knowledge. Tap into the corrupting source of sorcery for knowledge and power. Sharpen your tongue for the rigors of social combat. Prophesize secrets from the past, present, or future. Seek glory, justice, or the chance to live another day on the winding streets of Eversink. That's Swords of the Serpentine. Available now from Pelgrane Press. It's time to undergo a retinal scan. It's time to undergo a background check. It's time to make sure that you're not leaving any top-secret files strewn on the carpet of your office, because we're once more entering the Tradecraft Hut, where beloved Patreon backer Dan L. says, The infamous and genocidal South African chemist, Wouter Basson, and Project Coast. He's a clearly evil dude and had some wild schemes involving genocide by ecstasy. Is there a good way to integrate his fascinating but obviously sensitive biography into an RPG campaign or one-shot? Well, let's uh, get to that question after, Ken, you uh, discuss this particularly sinister and still-living uh, person. <laughs> right. Wouter Basson was born in 1950, so he is still with us, and I assume still healthy. He was born near Cape Town in South Africa, in old apartheid South Africa. He was a cardiologist and became personal physician to President Bota. And as you can tell with an authoritarian states, when you're looking for someone to run a, a secret and dodgy thing, you don't go to the most qualified guy. You go to the guy who you've already trusted to put things in your heart. <laughs> so uh, in 1981, Bota puts... Basson in charge of something called the Seven Medical Battalion Group, which is part of the South African Military Health Service, because Bota was worried about chemical and biological weapons being used against South Africa by its uh, numerous enemies. And so Basson begins researching these things, and once he starts accumulating a stock of lethal toxins in his research. Yes, and that might have been a, yeah, to defend against our enemies, wink, wink. Wink, wink. Well, the thing is, you start by defending against your enemies, you end by weaponizing anthrax. It's a pretty straight shot. So he has this collection of lethal drugs. So the South African Security Service comes to him and says, we have a lot of SWAPO prisoners, militants and soldiers and terrorists that we've caught in Namibia and in South Africa that we would like to not have to keep around. Can you just sort of make them go away? And he allegedly, and we have to keep saying allegedly because uh, as, as we will see courts say other things, allegedly provided the lethal drugs for this operation duel. And the operation was not to, you know, heroically go out and round up these guys. This operation was to murder a bunch of prisoners. So about 200 uh, SWAPO prisoners and uh, inconveniently informed informants of the South African Defense Force got the, the, the chop or the injection and dumped in the ocean, basically. And having done that, he had the stones. It was decided to run Project Coast, which became South Africa's official chemical biological weapons research program. And that spins up in 83 or late 82. He has a staff by the end of it of 200 people, has a $10 million annual budget. He runs Project Coast through a number of shell companies to, you know, source the chemicals and to run nuclear research for radiation, uh, radioactive agents, etc. One of the shell companies, delightfully, Robin, and when I first read this, you know, 20 years ago, I... I, I literally danced around the room it was called the Delta G scientific company. And, you know, he, sure. He's a murderous uh, monster, a uh, mangala for our times, but someone who names something, the Delta G scientific company, every gamer owes them a, a tiny tip of the hat. So anyway, project coast assembles this vast panoply of uh, drugs and chemicals and agents which he then allegedly provides for use against anti-apartheid protests. So there are soporifics, 
There are just straight up lethal agents. There's the deliriant nerve gas BZ that causes people to confabulate things and, and, uh, have basically go off and start alien religions. Pheromones, uh, sterilants to sterilize the populations of the various Bantustan ethnic enclaves that the South African government maintained and to sterilize the non-white populations in big cities. This was all part of the plan. And then also did a little bit of MK Ultra type research, a little mind and behavior control research, allegedly using quaaludes and ecstasy as some of his sort of base stuff, and then trying to build more effective versions of those drugs that would create a sort of placid, brave new world type Soma acceptance of your situation. And then having this giant stash of drugs began selling them, uh, maybe as uh, you know, I'm sure he wrote on the memo, this is to weaken the moral fiber of the underclass. But what it actually was, was to pile up a big pile of money that no one had on the books. And maybe Walter Bassan could help himself to. So anyway, uh, 1990, President de Klerk takes over in South Africa, the Gorbachev of South Africa, basically. And he says, stop building poisons and shooting them into the water supply. What is wrong with you? So he shuts that part of it down in 1990. And then he shuts the whole project down in January of 93 as part of the winding down of the apartheid security state and the handover to uh, Mandela and the African National Congress, who keep him on. He's still got a job. He's still working for the South African government. Oh, yeah. It wouldn't be the first uh, person with some genocide on their hands to have the scientific expertise to uh, get a new gig. Yep. A little, a little handshake, little boys will be boys. All is forgiven. So Mandela sends him to negotiate with Libya and Iraq for reasons that somehow did not come out at the trial, but may or may not have implied trying to buy what what hopes it was trying to buy uranium, but maybe it was something worse. And to generally, you know, keep the South African government aware of, you know, what other uh, users of weapons of mass destruction were up to, just sort of a, you know, little uh, liaison type stuff. Finally, he's arrested in 1997. His car is full of confidential Project Coast documents. And this causes the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission to say, oh, that's what all those weird, delirious reports were about. He's put on trial for murder of those 200 prisoners, as well as a couple of other yeah, people. Yeah, he's charged with something like 200 crimes. Yes. Embezzlement, drug trafficking, and many, many more charges. Uh, the trial lasts three years from 98 to 2001. And he's acquitted because it turns out the Namibian peace deal included an amnesty for all war crimes committed both by SWAPO and South Africa. So he's covered for Project Duel. Right. And if there were murders committed in another country, the South African uh, government figures it has no jurisdiction over that. Yeah, it's not really its gig, um, despite the fact they paid his salary while he was murdering those people. Not really their problem anymore. And uh, a number of other legal impediments were thrown into the way. And he was uh, fully acquitted of all charges and walked out of court a free man. And even now, I suppose he goes around and gives lectures to, you know, audiences of the worst people in the world. <laughs> and uh, the, I think the South African medical boards tried to, you know, pull his license and he sued uh, them. Just last year, it was found out that he was working for a particular medical clinic and uh, that caused a huge controversy and yeah. blowback, obviously, <laughs> for that clinic, unsurprisingly. So the broader question of how do you take relatively recent real world geopolitical horrors and actually put them into a role-playing context is I think you have to do that within the bounds of the techno thriller yeah. genre. And of course you're probably doing that within the bounds of a nerd troped techno thriller, whether that's Knight's black agents or the aforementioned Delta green. And part of the bargain when you get buy-in with people to do a techno thriller is you expect the sort of treatment that that, material would get in a techno thriller movie or a Tom Clancy novel. And I'd be very surprised if there's not been a techno thriller novel that has, there's got to be one out there that has referenced this, mm -hmm. what you would typically do uh, with a living person who might be able to sue you is that you would fictionalize them lightly. So you would say, yeah, project coast, the second in command was uh, such and so. And he's, you know, now he's on the loose and he's, uh, selling his services to this group that you're investigating. And so that you are referencing 
this real world horror, which is the point of combining horror and uh, techno thriller, but you're doing it in the same way that would be done within the bounds of the genre. And it wouldn't be about, you know, making this acceptable, but rather to draw a parallel between the philosophical sorts of horror that you're imagining and the always worse real world horror. Yeah. And, and to also provide that literal frisson, both of realism and of, as you say, of, of monstrosity that even if all you do with the game is you say this new reagent, this glowing green reagent came out of project coast research in South Africa, that's like saying, Oh, this was found in, you know, a Nazi vault, right? You're, you're imbuing it with that horrific provenance in order to signal if you inject it, you'd better mean it. This is not good. This is evil. This will corrupt you. This will damage you morally. It will eat your soul. It's not just to give you superpowers, right? I mean, if you want a superpower, well, that was made by the army in World War II and made Captain America. That's good. This is a bad chemical that does bad things. And that's why it's made by evil people. Right. And you want to do it with a certain level of seriousness, the yes. level of seriousness that a techno thriller or a horror game would have. You don't want to put it in, you know, something overtly goofy. Yeah. So I wouldn't do that in a, a feng shui uh, scenario, for example, because that is too heavy for the emotional architecture that you've uh, created. But assuming everyone wanted to be in a techno thriller in the first place, I think there's a level of assumed buy-in. And of course, as with any buy-in, people can discover in the moment that they don't want to go there. And then you have to, they invoke their safety tools and you have to figure out something else to do. I think it would be weird to go, well, this particular abuser of chemical weapons was, uh, was racist. Let's find a non-racist <laughs> war criminal yeah. and use them instead. And that's okay. That seems odd, but you know, up to whatever group, right? Right. I mean, everyone's got their own levels and, you know, certainly, you know, whether or not something is long enough ago that it is now just, you know, the Nazis. I mean, obviously, if you were just doing the Nazis as your signifiers, well, that used to be in, in ridiculously bad taste. Even when I was a kid, people, you know, furrowed their brows about Hogan's heroes and thought, well, this is an awfully trivial way to treat, you know, a Stalag. And, you know, there's a lot of questions. And I assume at every individual table for some people, some youngers, Apartheid is just Nazis. It's just a bad, horrible stuff that happened in the past. And we go ahead and we use it just like we would use the Nazis or Stalin or uh, Mao or any other uh, historical monster. And it's just one of our ample stock of uh, historical crimes. I do want to point up the, you know, uh, rich stew of uh, chemical biological agents that Project Coast developed. And if you're doing a MK Ultra mind control type story, this gives you another way in, in addition to MK Ultra or the various Chinese brainwashing programs. It provides a degree of geographical diversity. And certainly if you're, if your monster is, is stalking, uh, the back alleys of Gautang or whatever, you can, you know, you're, you're rich with, uh, origin stories of, awful things done in the past that created this thing. It can be a tulpa made by all the BZ gas. It can be, you know, uh, something that, you know, was born from a, a, a toxic uh, sink, you know, when they used a secret lab somewhere in, uh, in, in, in the back alleys where no one would catch them. And then, you know, this is the sort of abandoned insane asylum where tortures were done on the people story from half the haunted house movies of the nineties. Well, uh, once we've uh, moved from uh, techno thrillers to haunted houses, it's time for us to uh, abandon this hut and see if we find a non haunted hut on the other side of this here commercial. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled 
F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on drive-thru. Earn extra tournament points for wise treasure expenditure by supporting this podcast, just like such beloved Patreon backers as... Jacob Borsma. Ollie Teufenen. Tom Powell. Tony Kemp. And Alex Johnston. The plinths, the idols, the occasional sacrificed goat welcome us into the stark yet bloody confines of the mythology hut, where beloved Patreon backer Chad Ward takes up arms in defense of Joseph Campbell, of all people, saying, what's with the animus towards Joseph Campbell? Both of you have disparaged him in his work in multiple episodes, but without going into any details, just general dismissiveness. For those of us who watched the Power of Myth series on PBS and slogged through Chad Ward's words, not mine, Hero with a Thousand Words, Dear Lord, do not listen to the audiobook while driving. You'll fall into a coma and plunge off an overpass. Remember, Chad Ward is defending Joseph Campbell in this question. Some of the concepts seem to hold up and seem, you may notice, is doing all the work here. Vogler's The Writer's Journey and Voitella's Myth of the Movies have both provided scenario structures for some of my best con one-shots and a couple of radio plays, so give us the full 15 minutes where does Campbell go off the rails for you, Robin? Yeah. So first of all, clearly Chad has captured the ghost of Joseph Campbell in a jar mm -hmm. and is tormenting him by forcing him to listen to this segment in the, yeah. the way that the, the red cape is being waved there. So the short version of our animus against Joseph Campbell is that his thesis is wrong. Yeah. He bends the facts to support his wrong thesis, as one often does with wrong theses. Yeah. Some of the facts are come pre-bent because he's drawing on material from the early period of uh, anthropology, which is rife with back projection of cultural values and also some informant issues where there might have been some leg pulling. It itself is full of cultural back projection because his monomyth, his idea that there is one hero story that all myths adhere to, oddly enough, its lessons reflect the concerns of a mid-century high-status American man. When he looks at Greek mythology, he irons out all of the tragedy and talks about the heroes as if they're on a great quest or journey. And uh, I think, uh, wait a minute, <laughs> what, what? Greek myth full of unambiguous good guys? And in terms of his effect, he's done a lot when other people have taken that as a template for writing. And of course, disciples are always, you know, worse than the original prophet. And that has resulted in a lot of mystification of the writing process. You know, it results in people going, well, really, us modern storytellers, we're deep down, we're shamans. So that's bad. The structure that he proposes uh, results, if you follow it as the only thing to follow in a homogenization of structure, it makes structures all the same. I think he's about half responsible for the misunderstanding of the iconic hero, because he's very, very focused on the transformative hero, which is only one kind of hero. And we'll get to the refusing the call nonsense later. But so that's the brief encapsulation. But there's there's much more to delve into. Yeah. I mean, before we continue to tear down his bad and fatuous ideas, let's spend a little moment kicking Joseph Campbell himself in the face. Uh, he was an anti-Semite, according to his friend and colleague Brendan Gill, wrote that out in the New York Review of Books, quoted him as saying, in 1969, the moon would be a good place to put the Jews probably not in a good way. Then someone said, well, that's an awful thing to say about our buddy Joseph Campbell. His uh, colleague and fellow faculty member Roy Finch wrote in and said, just because he's a romantic fascist who loved Rene Guénon, you have to understand his crypto-fascist leanings were, were made worse by having to teach at Sarah Lawrence. And it's like, I don't think you're helping as much as you think you're helping Roy Finch. Okay, people are going to know who need to know who Rene Guénon is. Devin, we covered Rene Guénon. He's a uh, fascist scholar of Hindu mythology from 
where, one might suspect, Joseph Campbell got most of his knowledge of Hindu mythology, given that actual Sanskritologists and Hindu theologians say, uh, nope, uh, that's wrong. And among other things that you got wrong, you got the word bliss wrong, Joseph Campbell, which sort of knocks the strut out of the big power of myth thing to follow it, because if you don't know what you're doing, you're not going to get there. Um, Hero with a Thousand Faces is written in 1949, so already there is a eyebrow to be raised that this is an oddly influential book still, despite many better works on myth having come along since. It borrowed from and was very influenced by Lord Raglan, uh, who wrote a book called The Hero in 1936, and his attempt was to meld narratology, the structure of narrative, to Fraser's old seasonal myth of the Corn King, that all myths are actually about the dying and resurrected god of the corn, and they're actually all about winter and spring. And Fraser was wrong, but in Fraser's defense, it was 1890, and he mostly did it to wind up Anglicans. Lord Raglan attempting to join that to narrative, that produces our buddy Joseph Campbell. Right. And and what these three figures have in common is that they're all oversimplifiers, yeah, right. reductionists. And again, lumping and splitting, the, the two ways to study things, you can't just rule lumping out of court, but... You have to understand there are absolute strong limits to it because it's reductive. It ignores all the important details. And this is even before you say only men have heroes journeys, Joseph. Really? That's an interesting choice. And yeah, he has like a paragraph where he says, well, if it's a maid, it's based on the same thing, but backwards and in heels. And it's like, that's not even true. His alleged monomyth, he cannot provide even one myth that follows it. He just cherry picks bits of myths to match his 17 stages. So, right. and, and even within that, the version of the myth, if it's available in a, a number of different versions and different sources, he will pick the one that just happens to fit his thesis. Exactly. To, so he's, he's double cherry picking. Right. He does it all, of course, in the service of mindless Freudianism and empty Jungianism, which are two uh, fields that even if they told you something about the human mind, spoiler, they do not, right. and they don't tell yeah, you anything. So my, my objection is that he oversimplifies Jung, and your objection is that it contains Jung at all. <laughs> that it contains Jung and tries to be serious. I don't object to containing Jung. Much quality nonsense has contained Jung. It's just that Jung, speaking of anti-Semites, has his own structural problems and also sloppiness and insisting, for example, that all sun gods are male, which is just factually wrong. Um, so his one-size-fits-all stages are impossibly vague. So, for example, the atonement with the father stage. Oh, look at that. It's daddy issues, Robin. It's what's wrong with the other half of scripts. Can also include killing a monster. That's just like atoning with your dad. That's that's you all. You have to be deep in the Freudian tank. To, yeah, uh, to deep in the Freudian tank to buy that that's the same story. This is a Campbell quote. It will always be the one shape-shifting yet marvelously constant story that we find. And so, leaving aside the inherent contradiction in shape-shifting yet marvelously constant, he says every story is the same story. It's not remotely true. And it would be pointless, even if it were true, because literally the details and differences are what give stories meaning and character and what tie them to their actual source. So banging on about Greek myth without knowing anything about ancient Greek culture is a great way to tell you, what does the Odyssey mean to me? But it is a lousy way to say, what does the Odyssey mean? Right? The stories and myths come out of a cultural context that Campbell universally strip mines and ignores. I think we've discussed that he's ruined script writing forever with this book. And then right. the power and, and the reason for that, let's go into this again, yeah. since this is a segment on it, right. yeah. is that it's perfectly fine to say this is a structure that can be deployed successfully mm -hmm. and that, that I can make a great one shot scenario out of it. I can do a great radio play based on this. It doesn't have to have mythological provenance to work as a structure. His references to Hinduism do not have to be correct in order for you to use that structure successfully and have it be fun and interesting. But the issue arises when it's being proposed as the structure and when it sort of the monomyth becomes a monoculture and you see it repeated again and again and again, especially once it sort of gets, you know, filtered down and degraded. So the idea that, you know, every superhero story has to have a uh, an or has to be an origin story is like well okay except we've now seen you know there's 32 origin stories a year could we perhaps have some 
other structures? Would we like to have some some variants? And the idea that there is one structure for anything, I think it further infects other screenwriting advice, you know, even like Robert McKee and stuff, the idea that there is one way to lay out a story is, I think, kind of begins with Campbell, or at least is massively popularized by him. And uh, very often when you look at the great stories, including Star Wars, mm-hmm. to which Lucas, you know, credits a lot of his under to, to Campbell, doesn't follow that. And I'm glad it doesn't because yeah. it's much more successful and a much more complicated, interesting structure, which again, unfortunately, becomes less interesting as is infinitely repeated and riffed on. <laughs> and uh, we should also point out that Campbell's book is sinking in well-deserved obscurity until George Lucas, desperate for some sort of intellectual cred for his space elf movie, started claiming that he built everything on Joseph Campbell. So, Yes. If he just said this is an homage to serials and adventure movies, which he also said, yep. that would be fine. Right. And people wouldn't be wearing fedoras and calling themselves shamans as they sit down to write their screenplays. Right. If, if, yeah, if everyone were ripping off Flash Gordon, we'd all be much better off. Uh, so anyway, the other Campbellian uh, source material that uh, beloved Patreon backer Chad Ward adduces is The Power of Myth, which was a TV show, was, uh, interviews in the last two years of Campbell's life with the human embodiment of unctuousness, Bill Moyers, the man, by the way, who killed Kennedy by leaving the bubble top off the convertible. So if you're <laughs> mad about that, be mad at Bill Moyers. Oh man, poor Bill Moyers. He wound up collateral damage. He was, he was, he, well, you know, this is what happens when your big smiling mug lets uh, Joseph Campbell spout nonsense for six episodes. So anyway, uh, because it's Bill Moyers, it's softball questions. Campbell basically then free associates in response. It's basically boring nerd troping, pareidolia, but without the fun part. So it's random pattern matching. And without the cards. You need the cards to make it fun, people. Right. Yeah. Don't do nerd troping without the official nerd troping cards. If, if we've learned anything. And so the, uh, it's pareidolia. It's just pattern matching. It, it, it's nothing more than, oh, the Iroquois men- myth mentions blue. The Greek myth mentions blue. They must be the same myth. It's, it's that level of sophistication. Even Moyers gets mad at him in the show for wanting words to mean different things and having things both ways. He tries to nail down follow your bliss, which because it is semantically null he is not able to do um it's pointless at best to say it and of course obviously your bliss is stabbing people you follow that what if your bliss is you know just getting high and sleeping in your lawn that may be a great thing for you until you got to pay rent you know follow your bliss is ridiculously damaging and of course it overprivileges the allegedly good unconscious over the allegedly bad conscious. So it's even worse if such a thing were possible than Freud. At least Freud recognized that there's a reason to be repressed, for God's sake. It's endless philosophical mush. Noble savages. This is freaking Rousseau. Jung, of course, comes in for a lot of foot licking. Marija Gibuta-style ancient matriarchies, which are archaeological nonsense, and again, date back to the 1880s as a theory. He talks endlessly about uh, reconciling pairs and opposites. Once more, his infantile Freudianism coming back. And that's just mindless Hegelianism, the synthesis of the thesis and the antithesis. And then he tries to attach that to mythic structures, leaving out the fact that the fundamental mythic structure of, I don't know, Indo-European religion is the Trinity. It's the triad. Dumezil knew this, for God's sake. And Dumezil, again, published, I think, before uh, Campbell did, certainly before Power of Myth. So, even on its own terms, it's antiquated, it's wrong, it's mushy, and it, every now and again, leads people to uh, divorce their wife and run off with their secretary in the belief that they're following their bliss, like Bill Moyers said on the TV, and that's not good. Well, I, I think that would still happen without Joseph Campbell. But you would not be able to claim you're being a shaman while you're doing it, Robin. People would still write awful scripts. They would just have to own a little more of it. Yeah, so I don't know whether we would... You know, whether that desire space, that desire for rationalization would have attached itself to something completely different, you know, whether we'd still have Robert Bly and his friends drumming in the woods without uh, Joseph Campbell, but it's definitely part of that tradition. I mean, something that it can be both warmed over Ayn Rand and warmed over hippie. 
by definition, I think can't mean anything. <laughs> well, that's that's a union of opposites, Ken. <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> maybe maybe Campbell knew a thing or two after all. Well, he, he, if only it would have been the power of nonsense, it might have actually been a worthwhile book. Well, you don't label your nonsense nonsense. You just have small margins. Small margins on the back, and Bill Moyers making cow eyes at you for eighteen hours. Well, so I hope poor Joseph Campbell's ghost manages to uh, escape. Rot in hell, Chad's. <laughs> A soul jar, and uh, I hope you didn't have to listen to the whole thing. Maybe, maybe he fell asleep while while driving. And on that note, let us uh, see uh, what else awaits on the other side of this exciting commercial message. Delta Green Iconoclast, a campaign of horrors modern and ancient, brings a team of agents to a scene of terrors all too real. Mosul in 2016, held by the self-styled Islamic State in a reign of depraved brutality. From a small base at the Kirkuk airfield, the agents must research the horrors to come and prepare for a harrowing infiltration. ISIL fighters destroy mysterious artifacts. A Delta Green veteran goes rogue. Hidden myths permeate the Battle of Mosul. A demon god beckoned by a bloodthirsty cult. Plus terrifying supplementary material. Rules and guidelines for spying, crime, and backroom deals. New rituals. New tomes. And the dreadful details of a threat to suit all the evils of humanity. Available now in PDF. Or pre-order your glistening hardback slated for October release. It's time once more to wend our way up the creakety cobweb stairs. We're going to stop on the landing. We're going to wave at the portrait of the fire salamander. The king of the fire salamanders is going to wave right back because he's a friendly little magical amphibian. And then we're going to head on in to the parlor of the consulting occultist. He's waiting there in a smoking jacket to answer a question posed by estimable backer Tenet Reed, who says, Illuminate why Jeremy Bentham really converted himself into an auto-icon why people keep trying to steal his true head, and what will happen if the head is ever released from its reinforced box. And so before we continue with this, I think first of all, we have to specify that perhaps the least esoteric figure that we could come up with in English philosophy would be Jeremy Bentham if he'd not done the thing with the head that obscures everything else, his, his vast contribution to philosophy and to early social justice. But that weird thing about having himself be taxidermied, he's thrown himself, uh, mostly posthumously, into the realm of the esoteric and perhaps even the eleptonic. Yeah, he is one of the founding fathers of utilitarianism. The greatest good for the greatest number is the social good, is his thesis. And this is why the kids today on the social media love Jeremy Bentham. You can't look at people's feeds without hearing, I'm a Bentham head, I'm a Benthamite, because... Bentham talk is a thing, I'm sure. Yeah, he was an early advocate of uh, the abolition of slavery. He was an advocate of women's suffrage and equality. He was probably the first animal rights activist of any uh, renown. He was anti-capital punishment. For that matter, he's anti-corporal punishment. He was a prison reformer, although his proposed reform was a little scary, (laughs) kind of odd. But his heart was in the right place. That was at the Panopticon. I don't know if we'll get to that. He even advocated for the decriminalization of homosexuality, although he did not actually publish the pamphlet that he wrote about that because he knew just how out of step he was uh, with public opinion uh, at that time. I want to do a little sidebar to mention that Montaigne also called for animal rights. So predates Jeremy Bentham. Yes, I certainly would not want to prevent the uh, Montaigne stands. Right. Because there's lots of kids who love Montaigne. Yeah, obviously. The, The kids love the essays. But you can love them both. Right. And Jeremy Bentham would have allowed that. He would have encouraged that. Um, Jeremy Bentham also had uh, the occasional odd habit. He had names for all of his belongings. So his walking stick was Dapple. Uh, his teapot was Dicky. Again, we probably would not care about those things. Well, you know, he, he never married. Yeah. He had to have objects to talk to. Well, he didn't need a teapot and a walking stick to talk to you, Robin. He had an, a cat and his cat had one of the great cat names in all human history. His cat was named the Reverend Sir John Langbourne. <laughs> it's like <laughs> that is choice. If, if I didn't have a cat with the perfect name, Reverend Sir John Langbourne, what a great name. So anyway, Bentham dies in 1832. He's written his will in 1830, and it calls for his body to be dissected. He wants to give his body to science. 
and then preserved by his good friend, Dr. Thomas Southwood Smith. And Southwood Smith does all of that, but he attempts to preserve the head using what he knows of Maori methods uh, from New Zealand. And so he's boiling the head and, and drawing the fluids out over sulfuric acid. And it turns out he shrunk the head. He did not preserve the head. Well, you know, it probably shouldn't have been his first project. It, yeah, he should, should have should tried have on someone else's out. head for a while. Um, Bentham's own suggestion for how to preserve his head was just paint it over with copal varnish. And uh, he thought that the end result would be an auto icon, a self-image, and that everyone should do it. That he would start a rage and then people could stand their auto icons up in the lawn of their house. And so you drive down the driveway and in between the trees would be the images of the people who used to own the house. And that would be a good fun for all. And, and people would like that. People would like that on purpose. So anyway, his auto icon now has a wax head because Dr. Southwood Smith kind of messed up. And it was put in a, in a cabinet, a fun cabinet. It's, and so he's dressed in his clothes. He's sitting on his chair. He's holding Dapple, his buddy, the walking stick. I think the Reverend Sir John Langbourne noped out of this early. I hope he did. <laughs> and Dr. Southwood Smith kept it in his chambers. And so people would come in to have their, you know, goiter looked at or whatever and go, ah, dead body. And he said, no, no, it's just Jeremy Bentham's auto icon. Yeah. I haven't moved it to his house yet. So at some point in 1850, perhaps uh, worried about his practice, he donated the auto icon to University College London, where it has lived ever since then. There is a rumor, which we it, we are in no wise shutting down, but is probably not true, that uh, Jeremy Bentham is rolled into every board meeting of University College London and is listed in the minutes as Present but not voting, but he gets to cast the tie vote in any tie matter, and he always casts in favor because he's Jeremy Bentham. Right. He has only been well, provably we're not at it, it happens every time, but maybe it happened a couple of times. Yeah. It has only been proven to have happened once, but even the people who say it's only been proven to happen once say it may have happened another time. And I think right. once you've allowed two board meetings with the yes. preserved corpse of Jeremy well, when Bentham. When you suspect there's going to be a tie vote, that's when you wheel in. Jeremy Bentham's auto icon. Right. Yeah, that's that's what it is. It's it's a lot of maneuvering. Um, the head used to be stored at the feet of Jeremy Bentham. So he has his wax head. He has Dapple the stick. And then down between his feet, staring up at you would be his creepy shrunken head. Yeah, that's not more disturbing. That's not. Yeah. So Southwood Smith may have waited a little too long to donate it, but he did. And then the head. Robin, I know that you will find this hard to believe, but the students at University College London, they're japesters, many of them. And they used to kidnap the head and hold it for ransom, uh, the ransom usually to be paid to some charity. Right. By 1975, the university got sick of that behavior. They got sick of charity. Again, not Benthamite behavior, I would say. And so they moved the head to a strong room and kept it locked up in a box where no one could get to it. But in 2017, they did put it on temporary display along with the head of Sir Flinders Petrie, the archaeologist, the Egyptologist, who's uh, normally kept at the Royal College of Surgeons. So the two of them got to sit there together in a museum cabinet and, I guess, have a chat about Egyptological utilitarianism or something. And the reason that they did that was as part of a project where they were genetically testing Jeremy Bentham for Asperger's. They wanted to see, well, was he autistic? And I feel like if you've named your cat the Reverend Sir John Langbourne and you've named your teapot Dickie, maybe you don't need a genetic test to say, are you on the spectrum? I feel like we may have solved that problem already. Well, that's why they were trying to confirm it. Right. <laughs> All sorts of science. Yeah. So now's the part where we make up, no doubt, you know, he was an atheist, so uh, he didn't expect to go anywhere. So nope. certainly, you know, he's not in a soul jar getting angry at this podcast. But this is the part where we make him angry at the podcast. By I mean, if he's in a soul jar, he's angry already because it turns out he was wrong. <laughs> but he was a soul and he's in a jar. Yeah. But this is the part where we come to the make him up and find an esoteric reason behind the university student japery. Because, of course, that does not justify itself. No. There has to be some deep magical thing going on. That's a cover. And obviously a thing that stopped going on in 1975. Right. Okay. This is what I have discovered after perhaps too much research into Jeremy Bentham. Jeremy Bentham, first of all, the Panopticon, as we mentioned, is a situation in which every prisoner is able to look into every other prisoner and the warden is able to look at them all. Uh, it's a big circular prison. The emblem of the Panopticon that Bentham had made was the Eye of Providence, the Illuminati Triangle. 
And so that's a little signal to people that Bentham right. knew what was what. Because, of course, many of the Illuminati were big-time atheists. And again, in 1830, again, right as he's about to die, as he's writing his will, he uh, – and, and this is how – Straight-faced Benthamites refer to it. And this is not me being mean. He discovered influence and selfishness. And he realized, again, according to Bentham scholars, not according to me, that bad people often did things in government to their own interest and ignored the common good. Can you believe it? And that these people then had a self-perpetuating power structure that would nullify all of his good work. And his notion was, what you have to do is use, and this is again Bentham's words, the occult power of linguistics, of language, to create language structures that would spread among the masses so that they would rise up against this power elite that was up to no good and violating Benthamite principles all over the map. Right. Now, and, and be aware, historical figures, if you use the word occult to mean secret, even once, you're just opening the door really wide for us on this. Show. Yeah, it's basically make them up day is all day now. And so my thesis is that Bentham signals to the Illuminati in 1794 that he's on side with the Panopticon. He's like, you want to watch everything? I want to watch everything. Oh, you want to watch everything for evil. But he he plays it cool, right? He's there with Dapple and Dickey and the, the Reverend Sir John Langborn and saying, they don't know that I know what they know because I'm Jeremy Bentham. I'm very, very smart. And so he's working out over the next 30 years, his secret language methods, his ACLO, if you will, that he can, you know, whisper into the ears of certain people. And this is why he suddenly comes out for radical reform in the tail end of his life. He's like, now I'm, I'm throwing off the, the disguise that I've worn and I'm starting the revolution. And then this is the time of the great chartist uprisings in England, the one man, one vote movement in England, lots of huge social changes kick off right when Jeremy Bentham says, now I'm going to use my occult power of language. And this, is it a coincidence? Is it not a coincidence? Anyway, they get him, but he's cleverly written down instructions that his head be preserved. I mean, they're the power elite. They can't go against rich people's will. That's not how it works. So Southwood Smith comes, he uses Maori arts and shrinks the head on the one hand, but on the other hand, uses Maori magic to preserve Bentham's brain uh, power and his thoughts inside that head so that he could whisper the words of overthrowing power structures to people who listen to the head. And uh, Southwood Smith, sadly, not as radical as Jeremy Bentham says, well, we can't have this head whispering things. That's not good. Let's keep it in a box. Right, because at- this head is also very angry yeah. and, and has some pretty righteous grudges. Right, and if you look at it, it, it does not have a happy expression on its face. And so um, he says, I'm going to keep it in a box at the university and that will solve everything. But the students, of course either through diligent researches into the career of Jeremy Bentham or because it's fun to talk to a severed head, get the head and then the head whispers the uh, magical or not magical, the super scientific uh, mimetic payload that will allow them to start overthrowing the rich. And so that is what basically goes on, Robin, if you look at English history between 1830 and 1975. It's all radicals and socialists and hippies and William Morris and all manner of of behavior and uh, the rich are getting hit with estate taxes and it's hard to keep servants and the uh, social uh, system topples in on itself. Some may say that was World War One. Others know it was the whispering secret head of Jeremy Bentham. So what do they do? They say, we got to crack down on that kind of behavior. They lock his head in a box in 1975. Boom. There we go. Suddenly the pendulum swings back. Thatcher comes to power and uh, the the Illuminati are fat and happy once more in the saddle as they have been ever since that day. So, so Keir Starmer, in order to defeat Liz Truss and really, you know, seal the deal, is going to have to get Jeremy Bentham's head liberated again. Right. And, and start listening to its whispers instead of saying, oh, no, that sounds very radical. I don't want to do that. Right. I, I feel like maybe Jeremy Corbyn, uh, he was a, a student. He was probably a, a japester, a prankster, a rebel. Uh, a punk. Well, he I, may have listened I, to the whispering. He's a number of those things, but japester. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's true. Corbin, he's perhaps not. He, he may have had friends who were japesters. He, he yes. knew a japester. 
He had a japester in his Rolodex. Yes. I think there might have been people he otherwise agreed with who he uh, decommissioned because they were japesters. Because they were japesters. At any point. But Keir Starmer. Keir I Starmer. Know japester. I feel like not maybe the guy who's going to listen to a whispering head. I feel like the system, the Illuminati say, well, we're in the middle of it. We can watch everybody, you know, again, surveillance state. Right. But also the, the head at this point is just saying some really obvious, undo Brexit. <laughs> Brexit was a bad idea all along. Or maybe maybe the head is like still super concerned with the tariff on corn because it all its research was over in 1832. And right. Everyone's like, that's really not the uh, head. Come on. Well, you know, it's it's psychic resonance, I'm sure, will yeah. overcome any outdated specific advice that it's giving. So, uh, japesters and kids everywhere, my advice is stop trying to steal the head of Jeremy Bentham. Try and steal the head of Sir Flinders Petrie, who no doubt heard all the magic power, or I'm sorry, the mimetic power from Jeremy Bentham and can combine it with Egyptian word magic, with Heka, for a super powerful uh, chant that, on the one hand, will overthrow the state and the rich and capitalism, but on the other hand, will replace it with the divine rule of the pharaohs. So, you yeah. know. Well, I, I guess if there's, there's an upcoming energy crisis, I guess uh, Iman Ra uh, would be good at getting solar power going. Have to have to be your guy. Yeah. Well, on that note, uh, now that we've uh, <laughs> predicted the uh, what will undoubtedly be the near future British politics, it's time for us to abandon this podcast. But don't worry, we'll have yet another one a mere week from today. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Preserve this podcast as you would Jeremy Bentham's head by joining such conservation-minded backers as... Corey Welch. David Muscari. Fred Kish. Alan Wilkins. And Dave Stecco. Wear this show or Drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our latest Mythos Rabbit design, Bunwich Horror. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Ike. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>